You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Today we're so thankful to have Dr. William Federer with us. Uh, Just a brilliant man. He is the senior member of the Evangelism Explosion International. Uh, He is also a well-known public speaker and a best-selling author. He has written over 20 books. He is so prolific. Uh, I got to spend uh, an hour or so with him a week or two ago, and I can't believe how the wealth of knowledge that he has of history just up here stored in the noggin. Uh, This book here, America's God and Country, has sold a half a million copies. Uh, He has 19 other books also. All of them will be available for you after the service uh, in the courtyard there, and you might even be able to get Bill to autograph one of your books. Uh, He is a uh, uh, nationally known speaker. Uh, He's been on numerous media outlets. You've probably seen him on TV. Uh, He has a daily radio program called American Minute Radio and a very popular faith and history television program. He is a man who loves Jesus. He is a man who loves this country. And we are so blessed to have him here at the Mission Church. Will you give a big, warm welcome to Dr. William Fetterman? Thank you, Pastor. Oh, Bill, we are so blessed to have you. Now, Bill uh, gave a different message, the history of the Bible in America in our last two services. And today, Bill is talking about St. Patrick. So you're going to be richly blessed. So stick around after church. Talk to Bill. Bill, blessed to have you. Thank you Thank so you, much. Pastor. Thank you, Pastor. And I want you to know, the Mission Church, how much I respect your pastor, Pastor Dave. And you have such a tremendous leader right here. I got a chance to go online and listen to some of his sermons. I'm like, whoa, he is really good. I mean, I'm just blown away. So if I say anything wrong, he'll fix it next week. And um, I do want to mention, I have a couple of my books. Um, This one I did with my wife. It's called Miracles in American History, 50 Stories of Times in Our Country's Past Where There's a Crisis, They Pray and Have Courage, and Things Turn Around. Revolution, War of 1812, Civil War, Barbary Pirate War, Rivers Rising, Fogs Come In, and all kinds of neat stuff. Uh, Another one, uh, the Who is the King in America, which is the message I gave earlier today, and it's you, and I go through where that idea came from. And then a new one called Believe, and this is where I present the gospel in uh, the concept of uh, why God made us in the first place, and I'll share some of that at the end. But um, with that, I did a book and a DVD on St. Patrick, and uh, we have to start with the fall of Rome, and Rome uh, had the largest empire in the world at the time, and uh, Hadrian extended the Roman Empire to its furthest extent, and Hadrian decided to finally end this rebellious group of Jews in around 135 AD, and he decided to kill every descendant of David that he could find, so there could never, ever be a Messiah, and uh, of course, Jesus fulfilled it, and so there, there can never be another fulfillment because all the other descendants of David were killed off. That was Hadrian, and um, they uh, it tore down you know, the city, and they named, renamed it Jupiter Capitolinus. They forbade a Jew from even coming within sight of the city. 
Um, they like killed a million Jews in their games and their coliseums and everything. And so anyway, anyway, Hadrian extended the Roman Empire to its furthest extent, and after that, it began to shrink. And um, so, uh, as Rome was being uh, attacked, they would have bread in the circuses. So um, the Circus Maximus. It's not worth clowns. It was a circle where they would do chariot rides. If you ever saw Ben Hur, you know, the chariot rides, and, um, and so uh, they started a welfare program. Um, so then they had leaders that wanted to uh, appease the people with welfare. They called it a dole, D-O-L-E, dole, and um, and then they had violent entertainment where they would fight to the death in the Colosseum. I went to the Colosseum and I went in college. I spent a semester in Rome, and um, uh, so, so uh, let's see here. So here's Juneval, who's a historian. Already long ago, from when we sold our vote to no man, the people have abdicated our duties for the people who once upon a time handed out military command, high civil office legions, and everything now restrains itself and anxiously hopes for just two things, bread and the circuses. So all the people, they just wanted free welfare and violent entertainment. And, um, and uh, so I, I have a whole talk on the, uh, the fall of Rome, but I'm not going to get into it all because that's not my message. But I do want to point out the fact that Patrick lived at the time when the Roman Empire was falling. Uh, the, the women waited longer to have children and had fewer of them. And so uh, even Julius Caesar made it so that women were not allowed to ride in these uh, things with poles. They have servants carry them unless they had children. And, um, uh, but the uh, people invading Rome would have lots of kids. So the Visigoths and Osirgoths. And so Julius Caesar saw these people coming in are going to have more kids than we are. And, and we're going to, so he tried to... Uh, and then they did something called exposure of unwanted infants. And uh, they would um, kill the babies if they, if they didn't think they could afford them. And let's see here. I'm just going to go to the pictures. So um, it was their version of abortion. Um, in the Roman Empire, the mother would bear the child and lay it at the father's feet. If the father picked it up, then they would keep it. He thought it was healthy, you know. But if the, if the father did not pick up the child... The mother had to put it in a basket and expose it to the elements. And, you know, they'd have their tearful goodbyes. And, and, and the, the Christians would col collect these babies and raise them as orphans. And so if you ever heard the story of, oh, an old couple, the door knocks and they open the door and there's a baby in a basket. It's like, who leaves a baby in a basket? And the pagan Romans did. And the Christians would be the ones to raise these kids because they'd have the husband won't let me raise it, you know. And... Um, and so Rome was started by two abandoned children, exposed, Romulus and Remus. And supposedly a wolf came by and nursed them. But that's the, so the Roman Empire, they had a lot of immorality in Rome and bathhouses. And I won't get into it all, but matter of fact, the word gym for gymnasium, G-Y-M, that's the Greek word for naked. So gymnasium was where a bunch of men ran around and we're not going to talk about all the rest of this stuff. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, um, uh, they had that violence, um, and, and the, the government had their version of like Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, they, they had this one em Roman emperor that had uh, a department of royal pleasures, and they'd collect all the children and do all their stuff. That um, it was 
pretty corrupt. Then they had slavery, and um, the word, so the Slav, like Yugoslav, Czechoslav, Slovenia, Slovakia, Slav was a name of a people group. And the Romans captured them and brought them into Rome and made them permanent servants, so much so that the word for Slav got the connotation of a permanent servant. And today we pronounce that word slave. So the very word slave came from the, the Slavs that were captured. And um, here's Gerald Simmons wrote in the Great Ages, the Time Life books, in the casual brutality of its public spectacles in that rampant immorality that even Christianity could not check. So Christians were withdrawing themselves. It was a movement that swept through that if, if you really became a Christian, you would withdraw from politics. You would withdraw from the world. You would uh, sell all your, you'd give away all your money to the poor and live in a cave. And so these Christians would be hermits or they would join a monastery and even take vows of silence so you'd never even hear from them again. I mean, what a weird teaching. Uh, but yet, that has sort of oscillated through history. Every now and then it would show up and say, if you're really a Christian, you'll withdraw. Right? And, um, and we're seeing our, our view of that uh, nowadays. And um, here's one, Richard Todd, The Fall of the Roman Empire, Erdman's Handbook of the History of Christianity. The church, while preaching against abuses, contributed to the decline by discouraging good Christians from holding public office. And, um, and they had their sex trafficking and um, high taxes. And they debased the coin. There was their version of inflation. They had silver coins that they would mix in lead. <laughs> So it had less silver in it. They were inflating their currency. And, um, uh, and then you had the Rome being in political divisions and the, their military was cut back and weakened. And, um, and then they outsourced stuff to North Africa. And the Chinese on the whole other side of the world began to build the Great Wall of China. And the Huns were now hindered from invading into China. And so the Huns began to turn and attack tribes to the west. And it started the domino effect of that tribe being displaced and attacking the next tribe, which was displaced, and attacked the next one, the next one. And so you had this, this ripple effect of tribes being displaced all across Central Asia, and they were spilling into the Roman Empire. So in other words, Rome's borders were being invaded. And, um, and these were the Visigoths and Ostrogoths, which were the East Germans and West Germans, the Franks, the Picts, the Angles, the Saxons, the Alemanni, the Tabergans, all these different ones. One of the tribes was actually called Vandals. That was the name of the tribe. You can picture what they did when they went through town. <laughs> <laughs> That's where that word came from, the, the vandals. And um, anyway, uh, and so they all spoke Latin. But as these tribes began to come in, they kept their own language and they mixed in a little Latin. So they called them romantic languages, not because they kissed, but they had a little Roman Latin mixed in with the German and the French and the, all these different other ones. Um, but Rome lost its unity and was being broken up. And... Um, and then you had terrorist attacks. And uh, the one was Attila the Hun. And he had an army of a half a million men. The Christians at the time thought he was the Antichrist. Certainly he had the spirit of Antichrist. But he literally 
um, would uh, wipe out city after city across Europe. It was this enormous empire. Cologne, Tears, Mainz, Worms, Strasbourg, Metz. I mean, you'd get the word, this army of a half million men are coming, right? And then they were headed toward Paris. And a young woman named Genevieve got all of Paris to fast and pray. And for some reason, Attila skipped sacking Paris. And so St. Genevieve is considered the patron saint of Paris. And, um, and there's her, her uh, image there. And, uh, and then Attila was going to invade Rome uh, and sack the city of Rome. But the particular pope went out and met Attila. So he's on the horse, the white horse. And over there is the pope. And then above the pope, supposedly some angels appeared with swords. And Attila decided not to attack. But it only saved Rome 20 years because 20 years later, the, the Visigoths attacked and they did sack Rome. And so uh, when, uh, so there's the artwork of Attila and the angels above the Pope's head. And, um, so Rome was finally attacked and sacked and, um, and I, we actually toured all those ruins when, when we were in college. So um, Rome had to pull its legions back from the frontier. And one of the frontiers was Britain. It was originally invaded by Julius Caesar. He's the one that got on boats and went over there around, you know, 45 or so BC. And now we're talking 450 AD. So Britain was a Roman colony, but since Rome was being invaded, they had to pull their legions back. So all of a sudden, Britain was left unprotected. Sort of like wake up one day and there's no police and everything's fine for a couple days. And then when people realize they can start robbing and stealing and kidnapping without any consequence. And so you would have these mobs of people. Um, would, so around 389 AD is when Patrick was born. And um, you have uh, these marauding bands would attack. And... Uh, some of them came over from Ireland and they would raid the coast of Britain and put captives on it and take them back to Ireland and sell as slaves. And so Thomas Cahill wrote in How the Irish Saved Civilization, a book. Uh, he said, Romans in their first encounters with these uh, Irish, with these insane warriors were shocked and frightened. They were howling, it seemed, possessed by demons. So outrageous was their strength, featuring all the terrors of hell itself. And then, so these, Ireland was ruled by Druids. Druids is where Halloween came from. And um, they thought that spirits inhabited the forest and spirits inhabited the trees and these spirits constantly needed to be appeased. And so he says, Druids sacrificed prisoners of war to the war gods and newborns to the harvest gods, believing that the human head was the seat of the soul. They displayed uh, the, probably the heads of their enemies on their temples and now, if my wife was here, she'd say, skip past all that stuff. But the guy's sort of like hearing this. Anyway, but, um, so, but they would chop off the heads of their enemies. And So Patrick, his name is, is Patricus, which means nobleman. So if you read any Roman literature, you have plebeians and patricians. Plebeians are the common poor people. Patricians are the noble upper class people. And so since his name was Patrick or Patricus, he must have been from an upper class family. And um, at the age of 16 is when he is working on near the sea when these marauding bands come up and kidnap him. And so Mary Cagney wrote in Patrick the Saint, 
with no army to protect them, the Roman legions had long since deserted Britain to protect Rome from the barbarian invasions. Petricus and his town were unprepared for attack. Irish warriors descended on the pebble beach. Braying war horns struck terror into Patrick's heart, and he started running toward the town. Warriors quickly demolished the village, and Patrick darted among the burning houses, screaming women, and he was caught. Uh, barbarians dragged him aboard a boat bound for the east coast of Ireland. And so uh, he was there for six years, working for a druid chieftain, and uh, he herded animals. And uh, now, later in life, after he was there for 30 years doing all of his ministry, he got um, it was sort of like now he's a somebody and somebody back in Britain said I remember Patrick I remember when he was a young boy he said he didn't believe in God which was not that big of a deal for us today but evidently back then it was like uh, and so the, the church leadership wanted to have him leave Ireland and come back to Britain for a little sit down interrogation talk and Patrick said no God called me to Ireland. I'm going to stay in Ireland and I'm going to write my confession and send it in my place. And so he wrote it. It's called the Confession of Patrick and every historian acknowledges he indeed really wrote it. So it's sort of like the Apostle Paul, had he not been thrown in jail, he would not have written all those New Testament letters. Had they not accused Patrick, he would have never written his life story down. We wouldn't have known it. But so in his confession, Patrick writes this. I was then about 16 years of age. I did not know the true God. I was taken into captivity to Ireland with many thousands of people, and deservedly so, because we turned away from God and did not keep his commandments. And then the Irish believed that all the trees were inhabited by spirits that constantly needed to be appeased, and sometimes they would do human sacrifice to these trees. Recently in Ireland, they were like building a parking lot, and they were excavating, and they found that it was on top of an old bog or it was sort of a swampy, black, muddy, you know, and these Irish would, they would shove people into it. And they saw people with their hands tied behind their back shoved into this bog, and it like preserved their body like leather, you know. And um, uh, my wife would say, stop talking about that. But, um, <laughs> um, but anyway, it shows that they weren't killed in battle, that they were sacrificed. And um, so after I came to Ireland, every day I had to tend sheep. Many times a day I prayed. The love of God and his spirit came to me more and more. My faith was strengthened and um, my spirit was moved so that in a single day I would say as many as 100 prayers and almost as many at night. And this even when I was staying in the woods and on the mountains. And um, I used to get up for prayer before daylight through snow, through frost, through rain. I felt no harm and there was no sloth in me. And now, as I now see, because the spirit within me was fervent. And there the Lord opened the sense of my unbelief that I might at last remember my sins and be converted with all my heart to the Lord my God who comforted me as a father would a son. And then he had a dream. So this is after six years of being in Ireland. It's sort of like, um, you know, you send a kid away to college. It's like, it's a pagan environment in college. Well, this was a whole pagan nation, right? We at least have some godly heritage we can dig back to. Ireland had zero. It was druid, pagan, heathen, all the way back. And here's Patrick, kidnapped. Um, and he says, and then one night I heard, in my sleep, I heard a voice saying to me, it is well that you fast. Soon you will go to your own country. And again, after a short while, I heard a voice saying to me, see, your ship is ready. It was not near, but at a distance of perhaps 200 miles. Then I took flight. I went in the strength of God who directed my way to my good, and I feared nothing until I came to that ship. And so he gets to the coast, and they're putting wolfhounds on the boat to take to uh, Britain to sell his hunting dogs. 
And they said, if, you, if the animals mind you, you can come along. And they minded him, and so he went along. Uh, he was shipwrecked in Gaul, which is southern France. And then he, uh, they're starving, and the captain of the ship said, well, you're really a Christian. Why don't you pray? And so he prays, and a herd of pigs come across the road, and they kill and eat it. And then Patrick realizes that they're sort of wanting to make him a slave because they're like, oh, he can pray, and things will happen. And then she said, finally, the Lord got him to escape from them. And then he finally went back to Britain. And he's reunited with what's left of his family. And he's, it's pretty uneventful until he turns 40 years old. And then he has another dream. And he writes in his confession, in the depth of the night, I saw a man named Victoricus coming as if from Ireland with innumerable letters. And he gave me one of these. And I read the heading of the letter, which ran the cry of the Irish. And while I was reading, I thought I heard the voice of those who were beside the wood of Folkloth near the Western Sea call out, please, holy boy, come and walk among us again. Their cry pierced my very heart. I could read no more, so I awoke. He took that as a call from God to go back to Ireland as a missionary. Very similar to the Apostle Paul, and he had a dream of a guy in Macedonia saying, come over here and minister to us. But he's going back to the very people that he had been a slave to and kidnapped by, and he knew that they were Druids and they were ruthless, and, but he went back. And he went with about a half a dozen other guys, and... Um, gets to Ireland, and they, um, he goes right into the smoky den of the chieftain. This would be like you going into an inner city in a big neighborhood and walking right into the drug dealer's den. <gasps> I mean, just going right smack dab and, doing everything and preaching to him the gospel in their own language, which he had learned six years earlier, or back, I guess, when he was 16, because he's 40 now, but the, the language of the Irish that he had learned way back when, when he had been a slave, right? So he's preaching to this Druid chieftain in his smoky den in the Irish language. And uh, you had to realize that everybody there is like, whoa, where did this guy come from? And uh, the Druid priests realized that Patrick was preaching a new religion and it was going to displace them from their pagan stuff. And so they immediately wanted to kill Patrick. But the chieftain was like, what to hurry to kill him? Maybe he's not, he's not armed. And uh, he's sort of interesting. He speaks our language. And, you know, we don't get visitors that often. <laughs> and, um, and so the chieftain lets him live. And the chieftain gets fascinated with Patrick. And the chieftain gives him a plot of land in which he builds his first church. And, um, and so... Uh, and then there is the, his style of evangelism was to go, there's about 40 chieftains across Northern Ireland. And his style was to go right to each one of them and confront them with the gospel. And even confront them like with miracles. And so one was the famous contest at Tara. And so these are like a hill that was a distance from someplace called Slain. And so this is the distance there you can see. So the chieftain would make everybody in his tribe extinguish their fires on this one particular night of the year and would bring, require that they bring a goat or some gift to the Druid priests. And then in exchange, they would get some coals to relight their fire for the next year. And whoever refused to put out their fire on this particular night was killed. Well, it just happened to be the night before Easter. 
And Patrick's like, far be it from me to submit to this pagan king on the night that my Christ rose from the dead. So Patrick goes to this high hill and he lights a bonfire. And it is so bright that you can see it in the whole entire valley. And all the people are like, okay, chieftain, we had to put out our fires, but what about that guy? All right? And then the chieftain sends up a bunch of people to kill Patrick, and he prays in a loud voice, and they're smitten down. And so here's the, um, uh, in his confession, and one night, let's see, and he's talking about his prayer life. One night, whether within me or beside me, I know not, God knoweth, they called me in most unsinkly words, which I heard but could not understand, and except that at the end of the prayer he spoke thus, he that hath laid down his life for thee, it is he that speaketh in thee. And so I awoke full of joy. He goes on talking about, and again, I saw him praying in me. And I was, as it were, within my body. And I heard him above me, that is, over the inward man. And there he prayed mightily with groanings. But at the end of the prayer, he spoke, saying that he was the spirit. And so, uh, so I woke up and remembered the apostle saying, um, the spirit helpeth the infirmities of our prayers, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself asks for us with unspeakable groanings which cannot be expressed in words. And again, the Lord, our advocate, asks for us. Anyway, so his, he would confront these pagan druids. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and um, they try to kill him over and over again. He says, daily I expect murder, fraud, or captivity, or whatever it may be, but I fear none of these things because of the promises of heaven. He goes on, the merciful God often freed me from slavery and from 12 dangers in which my life was at stake, not to mention numerous plots. God is my witness who knows all things even before they come to pass, as he used to forewarn even me of many things by a divine message. I came to the people of Ireland to preach the gospel and to suffer insults from unbelievers. <laughs> That's an interesting combination of terms. Like, oh, I'm called to preach the gospel and to suffer insults from unbelievers. And um, I'm prepared to give even my life without hesitation and most gladly for his name. And it is there that I wish to spend it until I die. And I've cast myself into the hands of God Almighty who rules everywhere. As the prophet says, cast thy thoughts upon God and he will sustain thee. So this is the hill. It's called Croag Patrick or the Hill of Patrick. He fasted for 40 days. The year was 441 AD. And uh, that's on top of that hill is where he lit the bonfire. And uh, Encyclopedia Britannica has this. Patrick challenged royal authority by lighting the Paschal, which means Passover uh, fire, on the hill of Slain on the night of Easter's Eve. It chanced to be the occasion of a pagan festival at Tara, during which no fire might be kindled until the royal fire had been lit. As Patrick's fire on the hill of Slain illuminated the countryside, King Langere or Leary is said to have exclaimed, if we do not extinguish this flame, it will sweep all over Ireland. And so um, Mary Cagney writes, predictably, Patrick faced the most opposition from the Druids who practiced magic and advised Irish kings. Biographies of the saints are replete with stories of Druids who wished to kill Holy Patrick. One biographer from the late 600s, Murchu, described Patrick's challenging the Druids at the contest at Tara. The custom was whoever lit the fire before the king on that night, Easter's Eve, would be put to death. Patrick lit the Paschal fire before the king. The people saw Patrick's fire throughout the plain. The king ordered 27 chariots to go and seize Patrick. Seeing the impious heathen were about to attack him, Patrick rose and said clearly and loudly, may God come and scatter his enemies and may those who hate him flee from his face. 
By this disaster caused by Patrick's curse in the king's presence, because of the king's order, seven times seven men fell. And the king, driven by fear, came before and bent his knee before the holy men. So it reminds you of King Ahab sending 50 men to get Elijah, who's on top of a mountain praying. And Elijah said, oh, man of God, come down. He goes, well, if I am a man of God, my fire come out of heaven and smite you. And then the fire comes down and smites him. It's one of those stories in the Old Testament. And uh, so it sort of reminds you of that story. And so today you're all these people making pilgrimage to the top of that hill where Patrick lit the bonfire. And one of one biographer, uh, let's see here. And then there's a statue of him up there. So one time they had an ambush in a valley and they were going to jump out and capture Patrick. And they're waiting and waiting and all day long the only thing they see go by is a deer. And the next day Patrick was on the other side of the, the valley. And so one of Patrick's prayers is called the deer's cry or the breastplate of Patrick. And so this is a part of it. It says, I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity by invocation of the same three and one, one and three. I bind this day to me forever by power of faith, Christ's incarnation, his baptism in the Jordan River, his death on the cross for my salvation, his bursting from the spice tomb, his riding up the heavenly way, his coming at the day of doom, I bind unto myself today. I bind unto myself today the power of God to hold and lead, his eye to watch, his might to stay, his ear to hearken to my need, the wisdom of my God to teach, his hand to guide, his shield toward the word of God to give me speech, his heavenly host to be my guard. Against all Satan's spells and wiles, against false words of heresy, against the knowledge that defiles, against the heart's idolatry, against the wizard's evil craft, against the death wound and the burning, the choking wave, the poison shaft, protect me Christ till thy returning. You get the feeling that he's taken on these demonic powers, but he's just strong in the power of the Holy Spirit. And um, he says, Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. I bind into myself the name, the strong name of the Trinity by invocation of the same three and one, one and three, of whom all nature hath creation, eternal Father, Spirit, Word, praise to the God of my salvation. Salvation is a Christ the Lord. I mean, he was a serious Christian, right? And um, so we are facing uh, an ungodly world today, and he went right smack dab into an ungodly world back then. And um, now he used, he uh, was talking to Druids who were illiterate. They couldn't read. And so he would use things to convey spiritual concepts like the three-leaf clover to teach the Trinity. Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, three in one. And so that's why the three-leaf clover is always associated with Patrick. And um, one of the studies that I did on the Trinity is the prepositions, the little connective words. Uh, to, unto, of, from, by, through, in. Holy Spirit's in and with. So most of the verses that refer to God the Father in the New Testament, the prepositions in that verse are to, unto, of, and from. And most of the verses in the New Testament that refer to Jesus, prepositions are by and through, also with. But the Holy Spirit, the prepositions are in and with. Now, why is this important? Let's look at some scriptures. So pray to thy Father, which is in secret. I leave the world and go to the Father. Appear not unto men to pass, but unto thy father. 
Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. I came forth from the Father, comforter whom I will send from the Father. All things are delivered unto me of my Father. Come ye blessed of my Father. And uh, whosoever shall do the will of my Father, but he that doeth the will of my Father. I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Our Father, wherever heaven, thy will be done. So, Everything comes from God the Father and goes back to God the Father. And it's his will. There can only be one will in heaven. It's God's will. It's a perfect will. He loves you. He made you. He wants to spend eternity loving you and spending time with you. It's a perfect will. But for there to be peace and unity in heaven, there can only be one will. The moment there's two wills, there's war in heaven because they're not the same will. And they're going to come into conflict. And so when Satan said, I will be like the most high, I will put my throne higher than the throne of God, I will, I will. Five times Satan's saying, I will. It's like, okay, Satan's got his will. It's not God's will. There's war in heaven. Satan's cast out. And so part of our life's journey is to get our will to submit to God's will. And we pray the Our Father, who art in heaven, thy will be done. It's not our will. You're not going to take your will to heaven with you. There's not going to be two wills in heaven, yours and God's. There can only be one will in heaven, God's. So part of your life journey is to get your will hammered out of you <laughs> and, and submit to God's will. Even Jesus, sweating drops of blood in the garden, says, Father, not my will, but thine be done. There's only one will in heaven. It's God the Father's will. And um, so anything, everything comes from the Father, and it goes back to the Father. And then the verses that refer to Jesus, he says, I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. Unto him be glory by Christ Jesus. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. But my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And, uh, but the God of all grace, who has called us into eternal glory by Christ Jesus, he, is, he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and they taught and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me and then the verses that refer to the Holy Spirit are with and in comforter that he may be with you forever the spirit of truth he dwelleth with you and he shall be in you you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh I was in the spirit on the Lord's day so we have the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and they're three persons, one God, but they each, they have a relationship with each other. And we learn from these prepositions the relationship. And a couple more verses regarding the Holy Spirit. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if it so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. And for our gospel came unto you, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, are you so foolish as having begun in the spirit? You're not made perfect in the flesh. So I thought of a way of explaining it. A football game. <laughs> God the Father's like the coach. It's his will that's going to take place on the field. Right? He's in the locker room, got the chalkboard, got the circles and the arrows. It's his will that's going to take place on the field. But how does his will actually get onto the field? The quarterback. He runs to the sideline, gets the play. And then he comes onto the field dressed in the uniform as everybody else on the field, right? The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And what's the one player that gets to speak? The quarterback. He calls the plays, right? He's calling the play that's from the coach, right? And originally there was one other player on the field, the Holy Spirit. 
right? In the book of Genesis, it says the Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the deep, but when the word was spoken is when the Holy Spirit moved. And so the one other player on the field is the Holy Spirit. And when the word was spoken is the Holy Spirit created and moved the mountains over and created the ocean and everything. But now we are all players on the field filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in us. So we're carrying out the will of our coach that's communicated to us through our quarterback, Jesus. Right? Does that make sense? And um, anyway, (laughs) I'm sort of simple when it comes to trying to understand things. So here's Patrick teaching the Trinity, Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, three in one, and um, baptizing these Druids, and they are leaving their pagan head chopping off stuff. And um, it's interesting, Patrick was kidnapped before he finished school. It's like, what, what a thing to worry about. I mean, this is like, he's glad that he's alive. But to him, in the 400s, you still had theological writers um, in Rome that were writing these deep theological works. You know, there's St. Augustine, City of God, and all these things. And he feels like he is uneducated. And to us, it's like, you know, no big deal. But to him, he was constantly feeling like he was inadequate. And um, why is that important? It's because God can call you to do great things, but on the inside, you're always going to have this thought in the back of your head, I'm not good enough. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm not really educated enough. And God's like, look, I keep called fishermen, right? I mean, they weren't like brilliant people. God loves to use people who are, who are willing. And I, I heard pastors saying, it's not an ability, it's availability. You make yourself available, God will add the ability. And so anyway, so here's Patrick. In his confession, he writes, Patrick the sinner, an unlearned man to be sure. I had long had it in mind to write, but up to now I've hesitated. I was afraid lest I should fall under the judgment of men's tongues because I'm not as well read as others. As a youth, nay, almost as a boy, not able to speak, I was taken captive. Hence today I blush and fear exceedingly to reveal my lack of education. Um, The Druids uh, loved to sing, even though they sang about head chopping off stuff, but they sang. But when when they got saved, they would have choirs. And so these would be Christian Irish singers, choirs, and they would like, like, like hundreds of men and they would sing at the top of their lungs and they would say they'd like go up to a, you know, a, a pagan castle and they would sing and the, and the doors would open, you know, sort of miraculously and, and the angels would reach down to listen, to hear them sing. And uh, Patrick had a bell that he would ring as he's walking through the mountains so everybody would know that he's coming. And, um, and there is the story of him chasing the snakes out and they wonder, well, was he chasing the devil, demons out or was it actual snakes? There's always the question. There are no snakes in Ireland, um, partly because it's so far north. The climate doesn't, isn't warm enough, but it was warmer back then uh, because there was what's called the Little Ice Age from like the year 800 to like the year you know, 1200 when the whole world got colder. Sorry, uh, Al Gore. It, uh, it was a global cooling. <laughs> and um, anyway, so... Um, so here's Patrick, and, uh, and so this is in his confession. He talks about what I told you at the beginning. And when I was attacked by a number of my seniors who came forth and brought up my sins against my laborious episcopate, on that day, indeed, I was struck so that I might have fallen now and for eternity. But the Lord graciously spared the stranger and sojourner for his name and came mightily to my help in this affliction. 
Verily, not slight was the shame and blame that fell upon me. I ask God that it may not be reckoned to them as sin. As a cause for proceeding against me, they found after 30 years a confession I made before I was a deacon. In the anxiety of my troubled mind, I confided to my dearest friend what I had done in my boyhood one day. And I was 15 years old and did not believe in the living God. So they had church politics even back then. <laughs> but it's sort of this idea that you're facing druid demons on one side, but then you're, you're getting attacks from the other side, right? Jesus had the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Romans, but he had, he had Judas, right? And it's part of our, our Christian walk and that we have to realize that God is for us and is going to deliver you from internal and external attacks. And, um, uh, and he's a good God. So he dies on March 17th. Uh, that's why March 17th is St. Pat's Day. And the place that he's, he died is called Down Patrick. That's where he went down. And, um, and so he found Ireland heathen and left it Christian. And he baptized about 120,000 people and started 300 churches. And so he, he dies in 461 A.D., and um, a couple centuries after him, you had this guy write a book. His name is Jocelyn. The name of the book is The Life and Acts of St. Patrick. And uh, he's, Jocelyn is like a monk. And so he writes these stories. Now, there's really no way to go back and verify it. But it is interesting to see what these sto stories were and to um, know that these were the stories that were passed down for millennium about St. Patrick. And so uh, in this book, written in the 1200s by this Cistercian monk, uh, there's chapters, so chapter 68, of his journey and of his manifold miracles. Chapter 69, the sick man cured. Chapter 71, the dead are raised up. The king and the people are converted. Uh, chapter 78, 19 men are raised by St. Patrick from the dead. Chapter 80, King Ichu is raised from the death. Chapter 81, a man of gigantic stature is revived from death. Chapter 82, another man who was buried and raised again. Chapter 83, of the boy who was torn in, in pieces by swine restored to life. 145, a woman who was raised from the dead. Chapter 146, the testimony of one who was revived from death. Chapter 172, he banished the demons forth from the island. Chapter 178, the soul of a certain sinner is by St. Patrick freed from demons. Chapter 186, of the sick whom he healed, the dead whom he raised, and of his disciples who recorded his acts. So you get a picture of him being a pretty bold guy. And, um, and so he would confront, there was a British chieftain named um, Caroticus, and he was capturing Irish that Patrick had brought to faith. And um, he uh, was enslaving them. And so Patrick writes this letter condemning King Caroticus. And it's considered the first abolitionist letter because he's condemning slavery. He says, these are people that I brought to Christ and you're selling the bride of Christ into a brothel. And um, so Patrick was somebody that confronted corrupt governors, I guess you could say. And um, uh, he says, ravenous wolves have gulped down the Lord's own flock, which was flourishing in Ireland. The whole church cries out and laments for its sons and daughters. And... Uh, so these Irish monks would build these little communities with little stone huts and a wall around it and a tower. And when those marauding bands like Vikings would attack, uh, they would have a ladder and they would climb up into the tower and pull the ladder up behind them. 
and they would have water and food stored in there. And they would just wait it out while these guys were just, you know, destroying everything. And then they'd, if they were high enough up so they could see if they actually got on the ships and sailed away, then they would come back down and rebuild everything. And um, so uh, Patrick dies, and you have all these different Irish monks that are uh, being used by the Lord. And one of them is one named Columba, which means dove. But uh, Columba snuck into a neighboring castle and borrowed a book of Psalms. And he copied it. After a year, he snuck the original back into that castle. And um, the king of that castle found out about it and demanded the copy. And the king of the castle where Columba was says, no, you got your original, you don't need it. And it started a war. And 3,001 people died. And this Columba was like so upset that what he thought was good, copying the, the book of Psalms, ended up causing 3,000 people to die, that he voluntarily banishes himself to the island of Iona. It's a little rock island between Britain and Ireland. And he lives off of clams on the beach and builds this little stone hut and uses the stone for a pillow. And, but he gets, gets a gathering of men. And these men are like so austere. They're, they recite all 150 Psalms every day by memory. I mean, these are sold out guys. And then they send missionaries to Britain, to the Scots and the Picts. And I love this one. This is, look at the little road that goes all the way up there. And there's like a little monastery on the cliffs of that mountain. It'd be really hard for the Vikings to, to attack. And it's called the stairway to heaven because it's like pretty narrow. And, uh, and so the, the next century, these Irish monks would re-evangelize Europe. All those Visigoths and Ostrogoths and Anglos and Saxons and Vandals, remember them? That destroyed Europe, Attila the Hun. And so the Irish saved civilization and then reseeded it back into Europe with these Irish monks going back there. And um, the way they would do it is they would go down to the coast and get in a little dinghy boat and raise the sail. And wherever the wind blew them, they figured that's where the Holy Spirit wanted them to be a missionary. Feel called to go into the missions. Where are you going? I don't know. Which way is it going today? And, and one of the missionaries uh, was blown to the west. Uh, and so some of them, one of them named Columbana started 150 churches all across northern Europe. And, um, but this St. Brendan got in his little dinghy boat and he was blown to the west and nobody saw him for seven years. And he finally comes back and he said he was blown to this land that he describes that sounds like Nova Scotia or New England. And so they think that St. Brendan was the first one to like discover America. Um, but uh, one of the stories in St. Brendan's book is um, how he's in the middle of the ocean and there's a, there's a rock. And so he gets out and uh, has a church service on it, you know, communion and everything. And it starts moving and he has to jump back into his boat and find it's the back of a whale. And so you have all this artwork of St. Brendan uh, on top of a fish there. And uh, this is some fun stuff. So um, anyway, so there he is. There's, this is one where he's having mass on top of the whale. And, uh, but another Irish one we have to talk about is St. Bridget of Kildare. And so she was one of the ones that got saved during Patrick's uh, lifetime. And she was this young woman that was gutsy enough to go to these chieftains and say, you need to give me land so that I can build a monastery, so that I can build a church, so that I can build. And, and she would just press them and, and they would give her land. 
And then she would do it. And so she is responsible for like, I don't know, like a hundred different monasteries and churches across Ireland. Uh, St. Bridget Kildare. And uh, she asked the king of Leinster for the plain of Curragh and Kildare to build an abbey, the first in Ireland. And uh, she asked another friend, St. Conleth. And so they built another one. And she's credited for founding all these abbeys. She is cited in many records. And um, anyway, uh, so here God used a woman with, with backbone and courage to, to ask for land and money to, uh, to build this great account there. And, uh, and so when these missionaries went, they took the gospel, but when they would go and evangelize, the pagans would be like, okay, we're not going to chop off heads anymore. How are we supposed to do our government? And so Patrick put together what's called the Code of Patrick. And there would be some Bible law, some Latin law, some salvaged Irish laws regarding property and so forth. And all of it together is called the Code of Patrick. And when these missionaries went to Britain, they took it with them. And it became the common law. And in the 800s, you had a young 20-year-old guy named uh, Alfred the Great who drove the Vikings out. And he codified this. And uh, that's why he's holding those scrolls there. And so he started Oxford. And, uh, and so the Code of Patrick became the basis for English common law, and English common law is the basis for American law. So who knows? Even St. Patrick's uh, laws um, influenced us today. And uh, let's see, I get into some of the Viking history, and I'm not going to get into all that. Um, there's Irish immigration to America, two waves of Irish. Um, one was um, the Spain wanted to invade Ireland and make it Catholic again. And... Uh, um, and so they were going to have a war, and the British went in and drove out the, um, sorry that I'm skipping back and forth, where the, 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 the English drove out the Spanish, and the Spanish lost the Battle of Kinsale in the year 1601, and the Irish were sold like a half million of them into slavery, because the Irish were Catholic, and uh, the English was Anglican, and so, but then there was, a, in the 1820s, there was an Irish potato famine, and millions of Irish Catholics came to America during that time, and they were discriminated against, and they uh, ended up spreading across the country, and then they filtered into New York, so they have this big St. Pat's Cathedral in New York, and they have their St. Pat's Day parades, and um, uh, kinda... President Theodore Roosevelt marched in the St. Pat's Day parade in 1905, and the same day he walked his niece Eleanor Roosevelt down the aisle to marry Franklin Roosevelt, and... Um, there's the St. Pat's Cathedral in New York. And uh, that's my mother-in-law who since passed away, but she's Callahan. That's my wife. And that's my daughters. And uh, him with Clarence Thomas. And um, <laughs> my daughter, she gets, she's, she's really smart. She goes everywhere. And um, so uh, I, um, Patrick preached the gospel. And one of the ways I like preaching the gospel is... Um, uh, we've sinned against God. H have you ever sinned against anybody? You sort of don't want to be around the person you've sinned against. Right? Let's say you're talking about somebody behind their back and you're joking about them, making fun of them, and look up and there's that very person and they're walking toward you. Question, do you want to go over and say hi to them or like, eh, I, I want to get away? So when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they sinned against God. They wanted to get away. It's like two magnets that are stuck together and one of the magnets turns. The first one wants to touch, but the second one wants to get away. 
And so when Adam and Eve sinned, they wanted to get away. And God still wanted to walk with them in the garden, but they wanted to get away and hide. So it's not so much that God sends people to hell. It's once people sin against God, it's their own conscience that makes them want to stay away from God. Avoid God. A day, a week, a lifetime, forever. So Adam and Eve said, we sinned against God, we got to hide. And then they thought, well, we got to do something to make ourselves acceptable to God again. They put on fig leaves. That's the beginning of false religions. Man coming up with man's idea how to make man acceptable to God. Did the fig leaves make Adam and Eve acceptable to God? No. And then this little line, it says, God made Adam and Eve coats of skins. Question, how do you make a coat of skin? Kill an animal. Something has to die. Do you think God went to the other side of the garden, killed an animal, and brought Adam and Eve some nice tailored outfits? Or do you think maybe he killed the animal right in front of them? And they witnessed the first death ever. Right? Creation just happened. This would have been the first thing ever to die. And Adam and Eve are watching this innocent animal go through the pains of dying. And they're thinking to themselves, uh, we're the ones that sinned, but this innocent animal is the one that's dying. And God wanted to make it really clear to them that this animal was dying in their place, that right in front of them, he strips the skin off the animal and he puts it on their naked bodies. Maybe it still had a little blood on it, right? They were covered in the blood. And so for the rest of their lives, Adam and Eve are wearing the skins of the animal that they watch die in their place. And whenever God sees Adam and Eve, he sees them clothed with the skin of the lamb. <laughs> the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. And so Adam and Eve tell Cain and Abel. Cain decides he wants to worship God. But he does a branch off the church of the fig leaf. He starts the church of the fruits and the nuts. <sighs> Cain's is a religion of works. And we know it's works because God told Adam, the ground is cursed for your sake and you'll bring forth fruit by the sweat of your brow. Cain's bringing forth fruit out of the ground. He's sweating, he's working, he's trying to work his way to heaven. He's trying to do something to make himself acceptable to God. Did Cain's works make him acceptable to God? No. He piled all his works, all his grain, barley and everything. It wasn't accepted. Abel trusted in the lamb. And it's this picture. God is on one side. We are on the other side. Our sins separate us from God. And the lamb takes the judgment for our sins. And so Noah offered lambs when he got off the ark. Abraham offered lambs. Moses had every family in Israel kill a lamb and put the blood over the doorpost of their house so the angel of judgment, the angel of death would pass over. We are, we've been taken care of. So the judgment was paid. See the blood. The high priest brought the blood of the lamb into the holy of holies on the day of atonement and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. So you have the Ark of the Covenant, a gold box with a lid. Inside of the box is the Ten Commandments. On top are the two angels, and in between the angels is the presence of the Lord. So you have the presence of the Lord looking down inside the box where the Ten Commandments are, and you have this priest coming up representing the people that have sinned. The blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, the blood actually changed it from a judgment seat into a mercy seat. If the priest would have come up without the blood, presence of the Lord, there's the law, they broke the law, they'd have been judged. But he says, look, that's the lamb took the judgment for us. Solomon had a thousand lambs sacrificed when he dedicated the temple. 
Finally, John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. So God is on one side. We are on the other side. Our sins separate us from God. And the Lamb takes the judgment for all of our sins. So I ask people, are you approaching God as Cain or as Abel? If you're still hoping you're good enough to go to heaven, you are approaching God as Cain. I hope I did enough good works. Uh, Maybe a couple more handfuls of barley. (laughs) That'll do it. Or are you approaching God as Abel? It's not me being good enough. It's this lamb that took the judgment for all my sins. Now, why did the lamb have to die? God is just. He can't help it. He's just. He forever was, is, and forever will be just. Even if he wanted to, he cannot change his nature. He is just. Abraham tells the Lord when he's overlooking the Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, shall not the judge of all the world do justly? God is just. He has to judge every sin. It's like a mathematical equation. You have constants and variables. The constant is God is just. That'll never change. The variable is who takes the judgment, (laughs) us or a substitute. And so God is just. That's the only side of God that the devil knew. Here's Lucifer, beautiful angel, puffed up with pride, wants to put his throne higher than the throne of God. God said, you've sinned against me, you're out. The devil goes into the garden, gets Adam and Eve to sin. That was pretty easy. Then he stands back and says, ha ha, they sinned against you. You have to judge them because if you don't judge them, your silence is giving consent to their sin. It's called silence equals consent. In common law, it's called the rule of tacit admission, T-A-C-I-T. And it's in wedding ceremonies. The pastor says, anybody that's against this wedding, speak now or forever hold your peace. If you are silent, your silence is giving consent to the wedding. If there are sins going on, God is silent, not judging them. By default, he's giving consent to the sin. And if God gives consent to one sin, one time, he denies himself. He ungods himself. He's kicked out of heaven. He's not going to get kicked out of heaven. He's not going to deny himself. And he is going to judge every sin. So here's Lucifer gets Adam and Eve to sin. Says, ha ha, God, you have to judge them. Because if you don't judge them, you're silent. You're giving consent to their sin. And if you give consent to their sin, you're denying yourself. You're kicked out of heaven. And so God sends his fireball of judgment, but in steps the lamb and takes the hit. So God is just in that he judges every sin, but he's love in that he provided the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. We're made in God's image. Even a child knows what's just and what's not. Right, you're passing out candy, and one kid gets three pieces, and the other kid gets one. They're like, that's not fair. You know, every police drama that you watch, you know, the, the NCIS or whatever, the, it starts off with an injustice done in the first two minutes, some innocent person killed. And you're held captive the rest of the hour wanting the person that did it to be caught and brought to justice. I mean, that's the whole theme of the show. They got to catch that person, bring them to justice, bring them to, And as soon as they're caught and locked up, you're like, yep, they got, they got that. What's just, all right, that's justice. You feel this completion on the inside. We're made in God's image. And when there's sins, God, he has to judge the sin. And if we've sinned against him, and we're like, oh, you know, I'm going to pretend like nothing happened. He loves us, but he sees that there's, there's a part of him that just wants to judge the sin. And so he provided the lamb to take the judgment. So Abraham and Isaac are going to the top of Mount Moriah. I said this in the first service before. And um, Isaac, the son, says, Father, we have the wood for the sacrifice. We have the coals for the sacrifice. But where is the sacrifice? 
And Abraham says, son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And it has a double meaning. One is God will have a lamb up in the bush. Jehovah Jireh will provide a lamb, which was caught by its head in a thorn bush, like a crown of thorns. But it has a double meaning. It was foreshadowing Jesus. That God will provide himself a lamb, and that's what he did. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God, in the plan of redemption that was hidden from ages. It was a hidden plan. It says, if the princes of this world had known, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. The apostle Paul calls it the mystery of the gospel. In this hidden plan, Jesus, the Son of God, became man, became the lamb, and took the judgment for our sins. Only as a man could God die. Charles Wesley wrote the hymn, Amazing love, how could it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? God is just in that he judges every sin, but he's love in that he provided the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. And as I mentioned in the other service, you think, okay, God's just. There's billions of us. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve eternal damnation. How can one person's death pay for all of our sin? Jesus is divine. And he experienced judgment in a dimension we will never be able to comprehend. It says a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Jesus experienced that day on the cross as if it was a thousand years. You read the book of Revelation, it's hard to understand, but one thing seems clear. It's God that's pouring out the judgment in the book of Revelation. Lamb breaks the seal, angel throws the center down, angel blows the trumpets, angel pours the vials. It's like, why is that? This is the final judgment. God's a just God. He has to judge every sin he missed along the way. So you can't get out into 10,000 years into eternity and somebody say, God, there was a sin way back then and you didn't judge it and you were silent. Were you giving consent to that sin? Is there a part of you that's unjust we didn't know about? Uh-uh. It says the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. And the angels cry out, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Nobody's going to question for the rest of eternity that God judged sin. But he won't have to do any more judging after that because that's the final judgment. But in that sense, Jesus had the book of Revelation judgment poured out on his head. Jesus took the judgment for every sin that everybody would ever do upon himself on the cross. Experienced it as if it was a thousand years. That's why he was sweating drops of blood. And he took the judgment for our sins. You know, there's another verse that says, a thousand years is as yesterday to the Lord when it is past. So to God the Father, yes, so Jesus died 2,000 years ago. To God the Father, that was two days ago. For the rest of eternity, to God the Father, Jesus will have just died. When we go and pray before God the Father, we're praying in Jesus' name. He sees Jesus, and Jesus says, Father, forgive him. And Jesus took the wrath that we deserve upon himself. And then Jesus rose from the dead to prove he was who he said he was. And then he fills us with the Holy Spirit. And so instead of us doing good works like Cain, hoping to earn brownie points with God, you're already accepted by God through faith in the blood of the Lamb. And he fills you with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit does the good works through you. And his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. And it's actually fun. There's nothing more fun than letting God use you to minister to people. And you know what I'm talking about. 
right? Somebody's got a need and you start sharing with them and you find out you're saying stuff that you never thought you, could, you knew because it was not, it's the Holy Spirit speaking through you, right? Maybe giving somebody some money and you're helping them in their time of need or, and you're letting the Lord use you, but you're doing it not to try to earn brownie points with God because you're already accepted by God through faith in the blood of Christ, but it's him doing it through you and loving and the unlovable and rescuing those unjustly sent to death, defending the defenseless and clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and so forth. So today, good news, your sins have been paid for. All of them. As far as the east is from the west, so far as the Lord removed you from your sins. He saw all your sins in the depths of the sea. He's blotted out all your transgressions so that you, have, you can feel as comfortable in the presence of God the Father as Jesus does because you're in, you're adopted as a child because of Jesus. We are in Christ. So you can feel as comfortable in the presence of God the Father as Jesus feels, right? Jesus loves being in the presence of God the Father and we are just love being in the presence of God the Father. Right? Because all the judgment that you deserve was put on the lamb and you're approaching God through the lamb. It's good news. So today, if you've not yet put all your faith in the lamb, this is your day. This is your day to just accept it by faith. And it's the easiest thing to do. Right? It's not, I love the song we sang, it's the blood, but it's the easiest thing to do. It's not the opposite of trusting in the blood is to trust in your works. And you can never do enough good works and it's burdensome and then you get mad at God because you can never please him. It's like, all right, you never can. But when you trust in the blood, he did the work for you. So let's close with a, with a prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you, O oh Lord, for your Holy Spirit moving in this room. Lord, if there's anyone here, even just one person that is not yet put all their faith in the Lamb. May today be the day to walk out of here saying, from this day forward, I'm trusting that Jesus paid for all my sins and that I can spend eternity with God, my Father, and call Him Daddy, call Him Abba Father, and be loved by Him and love Him back. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Amen. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.